members, my name is Mackenzie. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. All right. I don't... I didn't tell you what I was doing. No surprise there. And this story, or this case, I'm covering it finally. It's been on my to-do list for a long, long time. And I was like, oh, I don't have the bandwidth to do that right now. But... It was um, in our murder lovers group, some conversation got sparked up about um, this particular case, which is Dennis Nielsen. Okay. And so one of our readers or listeners on there, one of our listeners on there was like, if you do Dennis Nielsen, my mom's friend wrote him while he was in jail and I have some letters that he, that she got back and I can send those to you. And I was like, oh. Yes, please. That's great. Like, I would love to read any correspondence from a crazy, deranged person like that. And she did. So she sent us in these letters that he sent to his mom's friend, to their mom's friend from when he was in jail. So, spoiler, he goes to jail. <laughs> but That's, is this the person? <sighs> so, I don't know what her handle is, but her name is Anthea. So, Anthea, thank you so much for sending these letters in. Um, they're, like, one of a kind. I don't know how, how like, I want to thank you so, so much because these are awesome. Yep. Um, Vetterpest. I know your handle. Ah, okay. Yeah, she, um, she DM'd me and, because, okay, so if you don't know, the group, mostly managed by Fatina, Instagram, mostly managed by me, she messaged me and she was like, send, do you have an email address so I can send like these letters over and I was like I have no idea what this is about but this is the email address and then I like messaged you and I was yeah. like you have an email <laughs> like, yeah I did no you read the email on. nope okay nope well, I just told you it was in there so here are the letters they're handwritten letters by Dennis, Dennis Nielsen while he was in prison wow to her neighbors her mom's friend while she wrote him while he was in jail so I will get to those letters a little bit later but I wanted to let you know like that's what sparked me going into this case because I knew that it was going to be a deep long dive and a big big hole to come back up but I was like okay I'm ready for it I'm gonna do it I have 10 pages of notes so hopefully we'll get through it in a timely manner yeah, I, like, briefly saw the conversation in uh, the group just because I needed to know what was going on. And, yeah. like, you all seemed very jazzed about something, so. Yeah, so that was this Dennis Nielsen character. So I'll start there. Dennis Nielsen, he was born November 23rd, 1945, and he was one of three children. He has a bunch of AKAs. So he's also known as the Muswell Hill Murderer. And that's just because that's the area where most of these murders took place. And he's also known as the kindly killer. And I will dive more into why that moniker was given to him. Yeah. And then also, and this is the one where I think I knew it most from. He's referred to as the British Jeffrey Dahmer. Ooh, don't love that. Yeah. She Campbell. So, and that's the thing. As far as the comparisons, I'll I'll dive more into what why they call him the British Jeffrey Dahmer. At least not the why, but like I'll 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 try and give you enough information, and I think we might be able to come to a better conclusion at the end of it okay. on why he's called that. So he's uh, like I said, one of three children. He is the middle child, 
Um, he has his mom is Elizabeth Duthie White. Um, she is Scottish, and his dad was Olaf Magnus Mokshim. I don't know why, and I couldn't figure out why his dad eventually adopted the last name of Nilsson. I don't know how that happened. I don't know if it was. I don't know why. Okay. So, but everything that I read said that his dad eventually ended up adopting this Nilsson surname. Does he emigrate at some point? No, not necessarily. Oh. He is a Norwegian soldier. Um, and he is away from home a lot, the dad. And because uh, they have, you know, they have this family with three children and he's home, uh, he's away from home a lot, they, event- they moved into Elizabeth's parents' house. So the kids were living with their grandparents. The mom, the mom was living with her parents. And it was a very difficult marriage just because the dad was away so long for his deployments. Um, it's said that every time that he came home from a deployment, that's when he would father a child. So those were okay. the quick little stints that he came in, left her pregnant, went back out. Um, she was basically doing it with her, by herself with the help of her parents, of course, but he was rarely home. So by 1948, uh, this was when Dennis was three years old, uh, the parents divorced. And that's because the mom said that, you know, there's a lot of trouble in the marriage. There's a big disconnect. Um, and she felt like she rushed into things by moving in together and mm-hmm. having children, et cetera, et cetera. Her parents supported this decision. So they moved in with them full time and they were helping her raise the children. Okay. So Dennis, as a child, um, was a very quiet and kept kid. He didn't cause too much trouble. And because they lived with their grandparents, he was very close with his grandfather. His grandfather was a seaman. (laughs) (laughs) We're adults. Okay. So his father was, I guess, a longshoreman, however you want to call it. And he... Um, spent a lot of time with him, and when his grandfather was home from these trips that he would take out as well, because he would also go on, you know, couple weeks out, couple weeks in, couple weeks out, his grandfather would take him on long walks uh, along the shore or along um, the different docks and whatnot. And mind you, this at this time, Dennis is only about five years old, and around that age, in 1951. So Dennis was about six years old. His grandfather, while he was out on one of these ships, unfortunately suffered a heart attack. Okay. They brought him back ashore, back on land, and back in the 50s, um, and I think even sometime after that, they would have a viewing at home uh, before they actually laid him to rest and whatnot. Unbeknownst to Dennis, he walked in one day to his mom crying, and she was asking him, what is wrong? Or he, sorry, he was asking her what is wrong. And she didn't say, and this is all according to Dennis. Um, he said that she asked him, do you want to see your grandfather? Mm-hmm. And she pointed to where he was. And what he walked into was his, was his grandfather dead. Oh, he no. was in a casket. And mind you, he was not told before, like, hey, your grandfather's passed away, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. He was just, he was just told to walk into a room where his grandfather laid in a casket. Ooh, that's like, that's like Traumatizing? they. Traumatizing? Yeah. They like, yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what to say. 
So, and this is a pivotal moment, at least to try to understand what's happening with Dennis, because um, according to him, and according to some psychologists, it is this moment where he sees his grandfather dead, that his feelings of love and grief well together like they fuse together for him as a young child that's his analysis of it that's his analysis and some psychiatrists have said it as well that this is a pivotal moment where he had these two sets of feelings but because he loved his grandfather so much and it was just like this grief and love they they welded together so we'll go from there okay his mom told him that his grandfather had gone to a better place and as a six-year-old, he didn't understand this. All he wanted to know was why didn't his granddad take him to this better place with him? He okay. thought that his grandfather had just gone away to sea or whatnot. Um, so regularly as a child, he would go on these same paths that he would walk with his grandfather, reminiscing the time that he had with his granddad. Mm-hmm. He would also go down to the ocean and walk in and put his head underwater mm-hmm. to try and like lose consciousness because he thought in his mind that his grandfather was going to come and save him because the ocean was this, you know, place where his grandfather went. Okay. So at one point, one of the times, he apparently did this multiple times, the current took him out a little bit further than he was expecting, where he wasn't able to stand back up. He wasn't able to touch the ground anymore. And he almost actually drowned until this boy came and saved them that was nearby. So he also had a near-death experience at that point. Okay. So he had these very early on um, feelings of maybe being dead is going to bring me closer to someone I love and I can find love again type of situation. It's hard to understand for someone that doesn't have those type of feelings, right? But for him, that's kind of what he felt. So once he started getting into puberty, um, becoming a little bit older, he was discovering his sexuality. And he, apparently no one from the opposite sex was paying him any attention. And he would often stare at his brother, his older brother in the room, who was named Olaf Jr., and watch him sleep and think about what it would feel like to molest him. And apparently, a couple of times, while his brother was asleep, he would molest him. And ever so carefully to not wake him up. And in his mind, and again, a lot of what I'm saying comes from his autobiography that he wrote later in life. Oh my gosh, of course he did. Yeah. So he said that his brother, he would do this to his brother every so often. And he thinks in his own deranged mind that his brother might have enjoyed it to a certain extent. And that there's some things that would have inevitably woke him up, but that his brother still pretended to be asleep. Because he was enjoying it, too. That's, I, yeah, they're, first of all, they're never asleep. Like, yeah. as much as you try and, like, convince yourself in your brain you didn't wake them up, they're not. And second, like, the body can react to something and it's still not be okay. Right. Right. 
so many things wrong with that scenario, but yes. And so by the age of 14, he was, he was obviously an outcast. He was not making a lot of friends. And his mom later admitted that when he was growing up, that of her three children, of her first three children, because she did go on to remarry and have four other children, that he was the only one that she never actually was affectionate towards, which is odd. There's no reason why. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I can think of is that, you know, his dad was leaving her with these little pregnancy presents every time she left, so, mm -hmm. every time he left. So she might have resented him a little bit for that kind of stuff, but there's no, like, actual reason that was given on why she wasn't more affectionate with him. Yeah. So by age 14, he had decided that he wanted to join the Army Cadet Force. Um, in order to do that, he had to get good grades and be in good standing. He did get above average grades. So by 1961, um, he enrolled into the army to be a chef he wanted to be on that type of detail um he wanted to uh, so once he got actually put on his post he never showered with the rest of the group in fear that he would become aroused in front of everyone else and out himself as a homosexual he because he was outcasting himself at this point he started drinking heavily and says that at some points, he also pretended to be way more drunk than he was just so that he would be able to loosen up or other people would loosen up around him. But sometimes it was just a facade because he felt like people just wouldn't want to talk to him. Um, eventually, he was changed to a post in Norway. And a lot of his, um, the people in his group were killed during battles and whatnot. Yeah. Um, this is also where he learned how to be a butcher, though. So he was able to, he said, be able to take a whole piece of meat apart and delicately at that mm -hmm. in 20 minutes or less. And he had to fit, feed a whole brigade of 30 people. Okay. So he was really adequate at, you know, having those knife skills knife and skills, knowing where, yeah. to, where to cut and whatnot. While he was in Norway, he had an experience that he went out to a bar and there would be a bus that would come at the end of the night to pick up all the soldiers that had gone out drinking. Mm -hmm. And he missed the bus, so he got into a taxi cab, but all he remembers is, the next thing he remembers is being in the trunk of that taxi. And while he's in there and coming to, he finds a tire iron. And so when the taxi driver went to open up the trunk with him in it, he struck the cab driver and switched places with him, put him in the trunk of the car and escaped. So... That just... Yep, just out of the blue. Yeah, that, I just feel like that escalated so quickly. Out of the blue. Um, so that was one of the experiences that he had in Norway. Um, while he was in post there, he also was given for the first time his own room instead of a communal room with all the other sol all, all the other soldiers. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time where he found it fascinating to, and this is where it gets weird. Er. Okay. <laughs> he had a floor length mirror that he put just the right way where he would lay down on the bed. He would have it across from him. But he couldn't see his face on it, but he could see his whole body. Mm -hmm. And he would lay there as still as he possibly could 
because he wanted to have almost this out-of-body experience Mm -hmm. with the fantasy that the person in the mirror was watching his body as it laid, like a dead body. Like, he liked to look like a dead body. And... Yeah, it's start processing that. It's presumptuous to think that you are fulfilling someone else's fantasy with your... Yep, well, he's filling his own fantasy, like a fantasy within a fantasy. Inception. Right. So in order, and then he, at first, apparently had to perfect this craft of his. He didn't like how he looked in the mirror because he looked too alive. His skin looked too alive. Mm-hmm. So what he eventually came to was covering himself in talcum powder, so baby powder, mm-hmm. and he would grab charcoal and dab that under his eyes so they would look sunken, and then he would his eyes would become bloodshot. So he would look dead. as dead as possible to himself. Yeah. And so in this mirror, in the reflection, once he was satisfied with looking at his motionless body, he would then f- masturbate. To his own image. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, and this was because he finally had the privacy of his own room. So then he would just wash up after he did his thing and then go back out with soldiers and either enjoy more drinks or more laughs with them as if nothing had ever happened. Yeah. Uh, I think you could still smell the baby powder, but that's just me. (laughs) You could probably still smell it on someone. I don't know. Um, so then after that, after being in Norway, he returned back to the UK, uh, where he served in West Berlin. And this is where at least we know he had his first ex- sexual experience with a female. It was a prostitute. And although he was bragging to his soldier buddies about the experience, he said that being with the female was overrated and at the same time depressing. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. Um, overrated and depressing. <laughs> what year was this? This was in 1960 or 1971. Why do I feel like that's something that someone would say today? <laughs> Probably. Being with you was overrated and depressing. <laughs> Two out of ten. Would yeah. not recommend. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend to a friend. <laughs> Caused severe depression and anxiety. So in 1972, um, he ended his military career and he moved back home. So this was, he moved in with his mother, and on one of these nights, his brother and his brother's wife, so his sister-in-law, were watching a movie together, a documentary called Victim. This was a, I want to say like a Brokeback Mountain for the 70s kind of movie. Mm -hmm. Like it was a little edgy. It was... um, ahead of its time a little bit yeah so it was a documentary about a husband and a wife and the husband was coming out to his wife Mm -hmm. letting her know that he had a male partner so while they were sitting there watching this movie having good old family movie night his brother and his sister-in-law were disgusted by the movie and were saying that audibly like they were saying they were disgusted and that both what they were seeing and what they were hearing was just not what they thought was i guess sane (laughs) they just thought it was insane to think that like engrossed that someone would be gay so because of the time period right right 
And so Dennis and his brother got into this huge fight mm-hmm. about, you know, whether or not, you know, should you be disgusted or not about, about someone else being gay. And at this point, that's when his brother took it upon himself to go out Dennis to their mom. So, not Things kosher. Things went bad really fast. Oh, here. yeah. Yeah. And this guy just keeps having terrible experiences after another. We, I mean, it was somebody that's already, like, inclined towards weird, like, the dead thing. Fantasy and things, yep. Molestation and stuff like that. Anything that could be perceived as normal going badly, mm-hmm. such as, you know, the experience of coming out. Yep. Having that go bad... Yep. Is just going to compound oh, yeah. further issues. Oh, yeah. It's like throwing a gallon of water into a cup. Like, it's going to overflow. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, he, when he moved back home, he was only there for a short time because, obviously, things were not sitting well with the family. So, he was there from October to December of 1972. So, by December of 1972, he had moved back to London. At that point, he missed the team environment and they you know some say that he also missed like having that authority and that uniform that presence of being in the military so since he was not in the military the next natural step was to enroll to be a policeman so he enrolled to be a policeman and he finished the training for that in april so about four months later in 1973 after finishing the training he did say that he missed the army he missed the camaraderie that he had with the other soldiers in the army, that it was not the same with the police. Yeah. Obviously, probably because you have someone on patrol or maybe one or two people on patrol. You don't have, you know, everyone in a battalion under a tent or something or in the in a bunker type of place. So um, at that point, he once again picked up drinking alone. And in the fall of 1973, London scene for LGBTQ or for gay people, I guess, mm-hmm. in that point, um, was slowly and you know, climbing and not yeah. being an open conversation yet, but it was still it was coming up. And there were some gay bars or bars that were known to be gay hangouts, so they weren't like your regular club scenes like we would go now to a gay bar, yeah, but they were like, um. Picture like a jazz bar, you know, quiet, low low lighting, like people out on corners and different chairs and whatnot. It was that type of place. So if you would only go if you knew you were looking for that type of uh, companionship, so to say. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't like a, you know, music kind of bar. It was like a smoking kind of bar. Okay. So he would start visiting these in the fall of 1973, um, and his dad, his dad, his birth dad, um, eventually uh, passed away in November of 1973, and left him, left each of his kids an inheritance of 1,000 pounds. So, being that life is, he did not like being in the police, and his, and his dad just passed away. He left the police in December. So he was with the police department for literally one year. Okay. On, so that same December, um, he, when he left the police, he became a security guard. So he still wanted to have like these positions of power type of, you know, place, uh, wow, sorry, jobs. 
positions of power jobs. Seriously. <laughs> um, so he he did a, he worked a security guard for five months till May of 1974, and at that point he decided to get a different job, and he got a job as a job recruiter at a job center. A lot of places will call this, at least online in the UK, they'll call this a civil servant. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like, um, and I try to look it up, um, like a like a city job. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it's a government job for so you're a civil servant. You're a government employee. Yeah, you're a government employee. Yeah. So there, he helped people find jobs. That's what his job was. Okay, um, and he worked there till 1982. So he worked there for eight years. Um, but in the meantime, in November of 1975, um, he met a man named David Gallahan. I'm assuming it's Gallahan. If it's not, I apologize, but it's G-A-L-L-I-C-H-A-N. Unless it's Gallachan. I think it's Gallahan, but sure, we'll go with that. This was a guy that he met outside one of the pubs um, that was getting bullied. Um, Some places say beat up or was just having some trouble with two men outside of this pub. And he kind of came in to rescue him or take him away from that situation and just say, hey, let's go grab a drink at my place type of thing. And they hit it off really well. And so he took him home that night. And by the next morning, no, they decided to move in together. Oh, okay. So they U-hauled it. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. Um, And David was gay. He was jobless. He was homeless um, at this point. So the offer by Dennis to move in with him and have a roof over his head seemed great so he was like yeah absolutely let's move in together so then dennis took that thousand dollar inheritance that his dad had given him towards getting this new apartment and they ended up moving together to 195 melrose avenue this is important because this is the address where some of the most horrendous things happen so they move into 195 melrose and In the back of the apartment, it's a two-floor apartment, but they have the downstairs. There is a garden in the back that when they moved in, it was totally to crap. It was overgrown. There was nothing in there in the back. And so Dennis asked the landlord, hey, if we clean up the backyard and make it like an actual garden, is that okay? And he wanted exclusive access to that garden himself if he cleaned it up. Mm -hmm. And the landlord's like, absolutely i'm sure it could only make my property value go up so right. by all means please clean up the please clean up the garden <laughs> so there's home videos of dennis and david working on this garden together mm-hmm. and they put flower beds they start growing some vegetables take it like a plum tree and an apple tree in the back it's not terribly big but it's not it's not small either. I'm not how to explain it, but it's probably like 20 feet by 30 feet, something mm-hmm. like that. And so there's home videos of um, Dennis filming David while they're working on the garden and whatnot. And David never got a job. He was the stay-at-home partner in this situation. Mm-hmm. Dennis was the only one making the money and you know paying rent and whatnot. Um, Dennis, I think, eventually got tired of that. 
Yeah. And eventually there was a lot of verbal abuse between David and Dennis. Dennis, I'm sure, would probably say something like, you're not pulling your weight around here, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, they weren't even physical with each other anymore. Mm -hmm. They said that they had, you know, respect and understanding and love. But at some point, the sexual piece of their relationship just kind of faded. So they both were bringing other sexual partners into the house. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So that quickly went awry. And by 1977, so two years later... David said that he left on his own accord and they had broken up. Dennis says that he kicked them out. So either way, David's moved out at this point. Well in life, he was not killed. Oh, okay. I thought things were going to like nope. bulldoze into like this not thing of there. jealousy and people were going to end up dead. Not from there. But it's also one of those things that Dennis at that point, he had a lot of partners that were coming in and out after he broke up with David. And he internalize this feeling of I'm unlovable. Mm-hmm. No one can love me. No one knows how to love me. So at this point, he was not even looking for a serious relationship anymore. Up until David, he was looking for like a, a settle down type of relationship. Right. Um. So here we go. Here's where... Now he's going to go play the field. Now he's going to go out and about. My face is hot. The murders all take place in a span of four years. Okay. It happens really quickly. So I'm going to give you as much detail as I can on each. Um, trigger warning. I. Uh, hmm. There's a lot. <laughs> uh, molestation of a corpse, beheadings, disembowelments. Uh, all kinds of things. But if you made it this far, just stick with me. Okay, so... <laughs> Can I leave? <laughs> no. You do not have permission. Trigger warning, I'm out. Trigger warning. All right, so... 195 Melrose Place has become synonymous with Dennis Nielsen, right? Mm-hmm. But on December 30th, 1978, so this is sometime, like about a year after... David has left and he's had a couple, you know, casual encounters with people back at his house. But this is when his murderous kind of spree happens. So he met a man named Stephen Holmes and he thought he was 17 years old. He invited him after being at the pub to come over to his house because he saw that Stephen was trying to purchase beer and was unable to get it because of his age. But he thought he was, like, right under the drinking age. He, they went on a bender. Yeah. At his house. And they wound up on the bed together, asleep. So they woke up to next to each other. Nothing happened sexually between them. They woke up next to, well, actually, Dennis woke up and Stephen was laying next to him. And it was at this moment, and I quote, because it's a disgusting quote, and Dennis says, I was afraid to wake him in case he left me. And then he goes on to say, because this happened on December 30th, he said he wanted him to stay with him over New Year's Eve, that he was going to stay with him over New Year's Eve whether he wanted to or not. The Jeffrey Dahmer comparison is becoming very painfully obvious to me now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I see it. So, uh, yeah, because 
yeah, we'll get we we'll yeah. let's dissect that at the end. But yes, I, I yeah, we're getting there. And so what he did and what his mo was for most of these was strangulation. So he strangled him with a necktie, and he he straddled him while he was on the bed. He strangled him with a necktie. Um, but he wasn't completely unconscious or dead because of the strangulation. So then he moved him over to a bucket of water and put his head in the bucket and drowned him. So he Ooh. says that the the way that he actually died was from drowning. drowning. He then washed him. He bathed him, his now dead, dead body, body. And he laid him on the bed next to him and caressed him and then he went on to masturbate himself twice and after he was done with that he decided to put him underneath the floorboards of his apartment nope nope he had him there for eight months within a first week of having him under the floorboards he dug him back up or took him out from underneath the floorboards question yeah is he on the ground level yes did you say that already yes okay sorry because they were in a two-level apartment but they were on the ground level okay sorry mm-hmm. no, sorry you're fine. i missed that i'm in my head i'm trying no, to figure it, out like it's super super important because yeah. it comes into play later okay so um so he, he digs him back up. he digs him back up and he sits him on one of the kitchen chairs and like talks to him oh god yeah and then some people like this is a part that like the fact that people are willing to live an actual nightmare yeah. and an actual nightmare is somebody's fantasy blows my mind. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is How? weird. It gets weirder too. So Ugh. he after 8 months have passed and I'm sure the stench has come and gone um, of having oh no, it's just come. dead buddy. It's yeah, just come. <laughs> yeah, in your it didn't house. go nowhere. <laughs> he took him out. He, you know, disinterred him and took him out and made a bonfire in his garden out back, and threw a tire on top of it to make sure that it hid the smell of a burning body. <sighs> so that his was poor neighbors. Yep, burning body and burning rubber. Yep. Oh my god. There was so, some hair on there and <laughs> So that was 8 months. So after that, he kind of got a taste of it and liked it. So on October 11th, 1979, so about a month after he had disposed of Stephen's body. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention Stephen was actually 14. So he wasn't just under the drinking nope. age. He was nope. 14 years old. He was 14. He really kind of buried the lead there. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. He was 14. So, and this was a surprise to him. He didn't even know this till afterwards. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How did he find out? Well, once they confirmed that was, he gave him the, the missing name. They confirmed thing. the name. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So on October 11th, 1979, he was out at the pub again and he met a Hong Kong student that was visiting. His name was Andrew Ho. And he invited him back to his place, some say with the promise of sex. Um, 
but we again we, we don't know that for sure but um while having sex uh he tried to strangle him the, mm-hmm. and andrew was actually able to escape so he is charged as an attempted murder okay and andrew actually went to the police and told them what had happened they interrogated both of them and the police wrote it off as a lover's quarrel because at this point they don't know well and what is is this the 60s or the 70s at this, this is point? the 70s 79. yeah and so when we're dealing with a same sex encounter yep. the police are like don't want to deal with that. they don't want to deal with it no period yep so then a couple months go by on december 3rd 1979 he meets a canadian student by the name of kenneth ockenden again at the pub and he invites him out on the town slash his apartment with the promise of showing him landmarks around town. He sits Kenneth down at his house with a record player and puts headphones on him to listen to, I believe, Tommy, a record that was out then, etc. And with the same headphone cord that Kenneth was listening to the music on, he strangled him with that. And he then had a Polaroid that he took pictures of Kenneth in compromising positions. And then after he had killed him, he laid Kenneth's body on top of his and just watched television for hours. Like a human blanket? Yep. And then after that, he dismembered Kenneth and put him underneath the floorboards again. This was his MO at this point. He dug him back up four different times two weeks later and set him, set him, sat him up next to him to watch television. He would go to work, come back to work, tell him about his day. Yep, your face right now. Mostly I'm thinking, why does Anthea have these letters? <laughs> yeah. I, think I know it's like, it's. I saw something about a friend or somebody yeah, like that. Yeah, it was her like, friend's, oh my gosh. her mom's friend. And I think um, it'll make sense here in a minute. Okay. But he was eager to write to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. It, so he seems pretty desperate him, for companionship. So if you, if you wrote him... Um, he would reply at length, obviously. Um, I'm sure even if you asked him a couple simple of questions because he loved talking about himself. I mean, he loved himself literally to death. He, he's crazy. He's narcissistic as fuck. But. I'm so uncomfortable. (laughs) So in May of 1980, he met Martin Duffy. He was 16 years old. Oh my he gosh. offered him a meal and a bed to lay on. Does he a runaway? Kind of. I think he, well, yes, I guess technically, because Martin was in town without the knowledge of his parents. He had jumped on a train and was out of, out in, wow, whew, out in London without his parents' knowledge. So, yeah, but he might have just been, it, like, not that he was trying to live on his own type thing, but. No, uh, right. So. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So he was 16 years old. Once he fell asleep, he strangled him. 
And again, it was one of those things where he didn't die. So he drowned him in the sink. He then did the same MO. He bathed him. He set him up on the kitchen chair. He masturbated onto his stomach several times. And then eventually he put him in the floorboards. Along with Kenneth's body. So now he's got two under there. It's apparent, apparently at this point, this is where Dennis was not regretting, but realizing that he really was unlovable because no one wanted to stay uh, by their own will, <laughs> free will. So apparently he <sighs> cried a lot. And through, so by January of 1981, he had five or six more bodies in the floorboards. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And he struck up another bonfire in the garden, and he did the same thing where he threw tires on top of it to smoke out the odor. And he said at this point, some neighborhood children had seen the fire and had come out to hang out like a, like it was an actual like fun bonfire. And when the fire had died down, he used a rake to make sure that there was no big pieces and there was still a full skull at this point, and he used the rake to smash it. It's just ironic to me that he referred to being with women as overrated and depressing, (laughs) but he doesn't find this depressing. You're overrated and depressing. (laughs) Yeah. Like, this feels pretty depressing to me, sir. So, for... A lot of the bodies that he was putting in his floorboards and putting into the bonfires to try and get rid of, a lot of them were disemboweled previous to these fires. And all the intestines were either tossed over a fence to an empty lot behind him or put into his trash can for regular pickups. So the final killing at Melrose Place was that of Malcolm Barlow. He found him actually on his stoop. One day, um, he was looking sickly and he asked him what was wrong. And Malcolm let him know that he had run out of his epilepsy medicine. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't feeling too good. So Dennis asked him to come into the house while he called an ambulance for him. And he did. They took him to the hospital. He got better. And Malcolm, being grateful for what had happened or what Dennis had done for him, went back the next day after he was discharged from the hospital to thank him. But Dennis turned around and killed him. <sighs> I feel like we don't need to cover Jeffrey Dahmer at this point. <laughs> well, it's different. This feels like, it, but it feels not different. Like, so much of it is the same, minus, like, the whole, like, drilling into somebody's head and acid and eating them. Yeah, because, you know, well, Jeffrey Dahmer wanted to keep them, like, zombified and in this Because he didn't want them to leave and he didn't want to be alone. No, no, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, they're the same, but as far as, like, the killing them or disabling them is different. But I see what you mean. Yeah. Yes, they're very The logic and reasoning behind it is so similar yeah they don't want to be alone yeah Mm -hmm. and they're under this you know 
keeping bodies in your apartment mm -hmm. yeah and luring Mm -hmm. men back with like promises of whatever it may be yep and one escapes and reports it to the police like it is the same it's the same so in 1981, that Melrose place was no longer available. The landlord let him know that he wanted to renovate the house, so he wanted him to move out. Of course, he was a little reluctant. He, you know, this is his killing place. So He's like, I have bodies on the floor. What am I supposed to do? So the landlord actually offered him a thousand pounds to actually move. So he made him an offer he couldn't refuse at that point. How much point. money is a thousand pounds in the U.S.? Do you know? Um, I don't know, but in 1981, I feel like it's like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars because their money is worth more than ours. Okay. I mean, when I think I when I when we went to Europe, it was like we got seven euros for a dollar. So okay. give or take three dollars. So, um. He did one more fire before he moved out. Right. With the rest of the victims that were in his house. Um, same thing. Tire over the fire. So he moved on October 5th, 1981 to 23 Cranley Gardens. Although the name says gardens, there is no gardens at this place. So his modus operandi had to change a little bit. Oh. Yeah. Look at you with your Latin <laughs> over there. This one, he had an upstairs apartment so he also had no floorboards to hide bodies in yes we have to re-strategize so that's why when you said is this a you know a floor apartment or ground ground floor apartment i was like yes and it matters because the next place that he moved into was upstairs no garden and you know those are the two things that he'd heavily relied on in order to get away with these murders so at that place, when he had just moved in, he had an attempted strangle, or, well, I guess attempted murder, by strangling 19-year-old Paul, Nob- Paul Nobbs, um, and he was able to get away. On March of 1982, so he's been at this new place for about five months, he met 23-year-old John Howlett. He fought back as well. He also strangled Dennis back. And he had to try, Dennis had to try three different times to try and kill him. And eventually, because the strangling wasn't working, which tells me he's not very strong because he's not killing most of these men by strangulation. It's like drowning that he's killing them by. Well, it takes a long time. And I would guess that like trying to physically restrain a man who is younger than you and probably stronger than you is a lot of work. Right. And so he eventually drowned him as well. But the marks that he left on Dennis were there for about a week. So he definitely tried to fight back. Unfortunately, he met his demise, but he definitely tried. Uh, in May of 1982, he came, uh, he met Carl Stotter. He was a 20-year-old man, 20, sorry, he was a 21-year-old man from Camden. Do you watch RuPaul's, RuPaul's Drag Race? No. Damn it. There's a... Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Is that upsetting to you since no. you haven't watched Pirates of the Caribbean? Now Not I guess really. we're even. There's uh, <laughs> there's someone on there called Lady Camden, and I fucking mm. love them. And they were the top two, and they didn't win. Oh, okay. But I was like, I said, Camden, does this ruin your whole story? <laughs> Good, because revenge. 
Uh, if you listen to last week's episode, all of this makes sense. <laughs> so he, when he found Carl, unfortunately, he was already in a depressed state. He had recently broken up with someone. And just like, I believe his last name was Ockenden, Ockenden, um, he, by no records or any family members, etc., friends, were these gay men. So, unlike, I think Jeffrey Dahmer, all his victims were homosexual, right? Um, I don't think all of them were. Maybe not. So maybe that's just another parallel there. Um, I think some he, like, lured back with, like, photo shoots, f- like, just, like, being friends type right. thing. Yeah. Like, like, let's go hang out. Probably listen to records. So he... He invited him in to have a place to spend uh, to spend the night after they were out having a couple of drinks, and he let him sleep on a sleeping bag. And right before he fell asleep, he remembers that Dennis told him, "Beware of the zipper. Like, don't get tangled up in the zipper." I don't know what kind of sleeping bag this is, where a, a zipper is like out and dangling and whatnot. But it that's what he was told. He was in and out of consciousness, mind you. They had been drinking a little bit, but this is an excuse. What happened next? So. He woke up to Dennis trying to free him from the zipper, Mm. like strangling him. Oh. (laughs) Like the zipper was around his neck. But he was trying to free him from it? Well, he woke up to him like freeing it, quote unquote. Oh, so Dennis was like, oh, you got caught in the zipper. Oh, no, I'm helping you. And next thing he knows... In his, like, what he remembers in bits and pieces is that he remembers hearing running water. And he remembers having these thoughts of, like, oh, my God, I'm going to die while his while his head is actually underwater. And he was, like, um, and when Dennis thought he had actually killed him, he set him up on a kitchen chair thinking he was dead. And Dennis's dog was licking him. And he saw a couple twinges on John, or sorry, on Carl, and was like, oh, he's not dead. So what he actually did is that he dressed him back up, he laid him back down in, in bed, and Carl woke up thinking that he had, that Dennis was actually helping him. And that mm. he must have gotten caught up in the zipper. And when he asked for an explanation from Dennis, he told him, like, yeah, you got caught up. You were, like, strangling with the zipper. So I took you into the bath to, like, get some sense into you to, like, shock you out of it or something. So he made himself out to be, like, the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. And eventually, um, oh, shit, yeah, he was a drag queen, too. Hmm. I never put that together because he's from Camden, Lady Camden. I'll have to look into Lady Camden to see. Never mind. <laughs> okay. So see if there's inspo there or yeah, something. Yeah. So he, Carl ended up staying for another two days there, thinking that Dennis had actually helped him by resuscitating him yeah. and bringing him back to life, quote unquote. In 1982, he met Graham Allen, 27 Wait, years I'm old. sorry. So did Carl survive? Yeah. So he never like tried to like do it again. No. He stayed two days and then he mm-hmm. left. Mm-hmm. He Wild. even walked into the railroad station later to the train station later, and just made it seem like yeah I helped you. I'm the I'm the hero in this story. 
I was dunking your head in water because I was trying to shock you back into consciousness. Okay. Yeah. Um, the dog's name, P.S., is Bleep. Trivia there for Dennis Nielsen. Him and David got the dog together when they first moved into Melrose. Um, and they called him Bleep because I guess the dog was really quiet and instead of barking, it bleeped. <laughs> so that's it. Ah, that's cute. It's a cute little doggy story. Um, so in 1982, he met 27-year-old Graham Bell, and he got he was over in his apartment, and he recalls making him an omelet. Now, with this one and a couple other murders just in general, he says that he doesn't actually remember the act of killing them. Sure. And you'll hear this over and over again on all these podcasts that when he came back to himself and saw that Graham was dead, he thought to himself, well, it couldn't have been the omelet that killed him because omelets don't leave red marks on your neck. Okay. And omelets don't kill people. Right. So there's that. There's that. Um, and his track record as far as work, although he wasn't the best at attendance, every time that he missed correlates with every, every death that was done of course obviously in a la jeffrey dahmer ah, <laughs> in a public service role <laughs> wild so on january 26 1983 so this is one of the biggest gaps that he had um, between graham bell and now stephen sinclair his last victim was um he again brought him up to his apartment and he used a necktie and some type of rope Stephen was already a troubled person. He had some, he had his own demons he was battling. Dennis justified that the killing was okay because Stephen had bandages on his wrist from a recent attempt. Yeah. Okay. So he thought it was okay because eventually it was going to happen. That's oh. what his thought okay. was. So now going back to why. The, the geographical dif differences between Melrose Place and the Cranley Gardens, the difference in the MO that how it changed was that instead of putting them in the floorboards, he was butchering the bodies, dismembering them, um, and then flushing pieces of flesh down the toilet. And he was boiling their heads to try and get rid of flesh and bones and all the innards of heads, hands, feet. Yeah. It's the same story. Yep. <laughs> and then he would flush him down the toilet. And then on February 4th, 1983. Wait, he flushed him down the toilet? Yeah. Does this turn into a plumbing issue at some point? Yep. So on February 4th, 1983... Him and the other tenants at this apartment complex put together a letter saying that they're not going to pay their rent. Mind you, Dennis is writing this letter, and this is important to know, to the landlord that says, hey, we have plumbing issues. If you don't come fix them in a timely manner, we're going to withhold our rent. Dennis writes this letter knowing damn well that he is flushing fucking bodies down the toilet. Smart. Okay. All right. So... They, the landlord's he, like, what could go wrong? Okay. <laughs> Four days later, there's a plumber that comes out. Unfortunately, he arrived around dusk time. 
So when they arrived, when he arrived, Dennis and some of the other neighbors came down to, you know, stand around a man watching into a hole like you do in any other construction business. And the plumber noticed what seemed like small bones and small pieces of flesh. And the plumber said something along the lines of, I wonder what that is. That's weird. And Dennis said, man, it looks like someone's been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. Okay. <laughs> Did the plumber buy this story? So the plumber said, this is fishy, but I can't really see. I'm going to come back tomorrow with the proper tools. It looks like it's a bigger job than we anticipated. So I'm going to come back bright and early tomorrow morning. So by 7.30 in the morning, the next day, the plumber shows up. The plumber's name is Michael Catron. He shows up and the drain had been cleared. So obviously, Dennis had gone up and cleared the pipes. The plumber, because he had grown suspicious from what he had seen the day before, dug into some more of the pipe that wasn't, you know, readily accessible. And he found more bones and more fleshy pieces. And he called the police. So obviously the police arrived. They send some pieces of bones onto the pathologist and they're immediately identified as human remains. One of the pieces was actually part of a neck that you could tell that there was ligature marks on it. So from the small pieces that were found, they were able to determine that whosever body it is <laughs> was strangled. Was strangled. So the very next, the very same Forensics day. Forensics is wild. Yeah, it me. is. So the very same day, the detectives go knocking on, I almost said Jeffrey's door, on Dennis's door and said, hey, the way that these pipes work and the only way that they could have been found in this drain would have been from your apartment because your apartment drains down and it wouldn't have come down from the downstairs apartment. And... As soon as the detective stepped into his apartment, they could smell, of course, rotting flesh. And his response to them saying, hey, we need to talk, you know, we found human remains was good grief. How awful. And this next quote is something that you'll hear time and time again, because the detective, I think, understandably, this was burned into his mind. But apparently he says, I quote, don't mess around. Where's the rest of the body? Dennis says, they're in two plastic bags in that wardrobe. And then he says, okay, is there any more bodies that we should be aware of? Is there anything else you need to tell us? He says, no, just take me down to the station. I need to take this off my chest. We'll talk there. So he gets put into handcuffs, puts in a patrol car, and off to the station. On the way to the station, the detective asks him, is there any more bodies that we should be aware of? How many people have you killed in total? And he says 15 or 16. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The police were probably like, how did I get, like, why did I come to work today? Yeah, seriously. So in those plastic bags, there were two torsos, presumably, well, we know Stephen Sinclair and Graham Allen. Um, there was internal or organs in it as well. And there was a skull with no flesh. The plumber, the police, obviously, they're working a little bit backwards because usually they have missing people and they have murders that have been unsolved. But now they have 
caught the murderer and they need to work backwards and try and figure out who's been murdered, who is missing. So the ball is in Dennis's court. So they don't have any information yet about victims, about what's happening. And the plumber, so sorry, I say that to say the police was not going to be friendly with the media and cooperating, give them the details because they don't know the details themselves. Mm -hmm. The plumber sold out and sold the story to the media the very next day for $300. Oh, my gosh. And every time they asked Dennis something along the lines of, why would you do this? Why did you do this? Et cetera, et cetera. What was your motive? He would always answer with, I was hoping you could tell me that. Which becomes very important to the trial. Because had he said either I did it because of anger or in the moment or, you know, whatever it was, um, it helped make a case for insanity or possible insanity defense. Uh, let's see. So on February 11th, so three days after, because they had 48 hours to charge him to come up with an actual name of a victim. So had they not gotten a name from Dennis on who was in the bag or in the pipes, they would not have been able to charge him with anything, which is bonkers because there's literal bodies in his house. But again, they're working backwards, right? Because they don't know who the victims are. So three days after the initial arrest, they officially charged them with the murders of Stephen Sinclair and... It was Stephen Sinclair. So between then and his trial in October, which is really fast, about eight months later... He had hired and fired his attorney about four or five times, Attorney Moss. He thought he was incompetent, that he wasn't helping him. He wanted to lawyer himself. <laughs> so, a la Bundy. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is like such a blend of so many different yeah. serial killers, it's wild. So, Douglas Stewart um, was one of the witnesses. He was a victim who had fallen asleep, woke up to Dennis choking him, and when he woke up to him choking him, Dennis started yelling, take my money. Just take my money and go. So it's almost what he did with um, Stoddard, where he was like, I'm helping you, and I'm the hero in this story, or like, I'm not the one to blame in this story. Yeah. So he was he was actually one of the people that survived the whole ordeal um carl stoddard also um testified in court and eventually he was it was a jury trial and it was a jury trial because the first day they went into court the assumption was that he was going to plead guilty and yeah. it was going to be easy peasy. The media would die down, et cetera, et cetera. This motherfucker went in and said not guilty to all eight charges. Mm -hmm. So then that's why they had a trial. And they eventually the jury, it was a majority vote, so it was not unanimous, but they found him guilty on all eight charges. So this, the. Did you say it was not unanimous? It was not unanimous. Yeah, because the question was not whether or not he killed them. But whether or not he was insane. Right. Criminally responsible for the the deaths. Yeah. 
I know. Because he saw his grandpa dead one time and he fused these ideas. Yep. No. So they he was sentenced at that point for uh, for life with a minimum of 25 years. So there was a possibility that after 25 years he could be released. Mm-hmm. Um, it was later reviewed and was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole or getting out after a minimum amount of time. And um, a little bit about his jail time. He was cut on the face with by some inmate at some point that he needed eight or nine stitches. That's just a fun Shoot. trivia fact. And I, I, you know what? I only put that because I knew you'd respond to that. I was like, that's a lot of that's stitches. That's a lot of stitches. That's a lot. That's a, yeah. That's a big old gash. I mean, usually, at least what I do, if we encounter a laceration, at least a facial laceration, a lot of the times because it's face, they're going to glue it back together, you know, unless it's so deep, like muscles need to be stapled, like inside, internally. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, 89 stitches. Like usually like What's a five that? or six stitch face laceration is pretty bad. Yeah. But 89. Wow. That got him all the way across. Yeah. Good and for them, whoever he, that inmate was. Good for them. Um, he he was a troubled person. Even when he was in prison, he was in solitary confinement for confinement for a lot of time. He refused to put on the prison outfit because he refused to like feel like an inmate. So they're like, "Okay, you're gonna be naked in in solitary confinement." Right. He. So it wasn't the fact that he's sitting in a cell uh-huh. being fed his meals through a slot. It yeah. was the uniform that was too much for him. At some point, I mean, he spent the rest of his life in jail. He ended up doing translation into Braille. Oh. So this is like, um, who read the children's books while he was Ed in Kemper. jail? Ed Kemper. Ed Kemper read the children's books. So this has a little bit of everything. Literally everything. Um, he wrote a 400-page autobiography that he named History of a Drowning Boy. And while he was in jail, he corresponded a lot with Brian Masters, which is also the person that wrote The Kindly Killer Oh, no, no, so no, sorry. He, he, he called it Killing for Company. And he hated that title. And he no longer wanted to work with Brian Masters. So he ended up writing his own autobiography. And he called it The dr- History the, of a Drowning Boy. Even though he drowned his victims. Yep. That feels like it's in poor taste, but. Yep. Yep. So that is the story of Dennis Nielsen. And so the letter... Yeah, I was going to say, so where do the letters fall into this? So the letter that he wrote, so this is what she said. She says, Dennis was from Fraserburg, Fraserburg, sorry, which is 20 miles from my hometown. I won't say your hometown, (laughs) but it says on the northeast coast of Scotland. He went to school with my friend's mom. He committed all of his murders in London and he was caught when all the body when parts of the body blocked the drains in the building. Um, oh, and then she did mention there was a brilliant drama about him called Des, which I did watch. Um, how do you pronounce her name? Is it Anthea? I think it's Anthea. It's Anthea or Anthea. I think it's Anthea. Anthea. So Anthea, I did watch that. I paid for it on YouTube, and it's a three-part series 
um, which a phenomenal actor just plays him. So Des is what I guess his friends, close friends called yeah. him instead of Dennis. Um, it gives you a little bit of insight into how delusional this man is, but it definitely starts at the plumbing being blocked and discovered forward. So it doesn't give you any fictional recreations of his youth or anything like that. Okay. As far as this documentary or short documentary goes. Um, but I did watch it. It was really insightful. And so the letters, um, so there were to her friend's mom. Sorry, to her mom's friend. Okay. Okay. So her name is Sharon. She must have written him while he was in prison. It's four letters long, four pages long. And I'll give you the gist of it. He rambles. Yeah. <laughs> he rambles a lot. Um, it says, thanks for your letter. On the 10th, you raise a... You raise a few and very pertinent and interesting points in it. We both have in common the necessity to leave Fraserburg in order to gain independence and seek outside employment opportunities, which are very limited in, I'm assuming, the town, because I, I don't know what that says. It says, the book you, re you read was most probably Killing for Company, which was one man's, in quotes, Brian Masters' view of my life and situation. He was handicapped from the start because his experience of life has been so very different from my own. It must have been hard for him to identify with a background and attitudes. It's incursive and it's terrible. With a background from working poverty, factory workers, soldiers, chefs, security officers, policemen, civil service, etc. Which is funny because he names every single position that he's ever held yeah. as of those in poverty. It was all... We can also oh, post these too. Yeah. It was all an alien world to Brian, but he did his best within the constraints of his style and his perceptions. All in all, Brian was the one who was stuck with me and supported me in the past seven years and I, that I've been in prison. So he was seven years into his prison sentence at this point. Um, and then he goes on to say that, you know, prison is very lonely and that um, he didn't like how one set of people, in this case the army, wouldn't be reprimanded for killing an entire town or bombing an entire town, but he felt like he was almost unjustly sentenced. It's so weird. This man is so out there. <sighs> um, but yeah, lots of correlations between him and Dahmer. So, uh, of course, he came before Dahmer. Yeah. So, it would be interesting to know if Dahmer knew of him. <laughs> yeah. I Yeah, that would be interesting to know. Yeah. Who copied who? Right. Now, um... Anthea, if you didn't recognize her or her handle, she's the one that taught us the word nonce. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And um, <laughs> very frequently teaches me Scottish-British slang. She is our official yes, she UK is. correspondent, if you will. Yeah. Um, which is why when you said her name, I was like, wait, I know that name. Yeah. But I know her Instagram her handle, handle name. Yeah. Um, so the other day she taught me the word jings, which is like, it means, oh, wow. Or... Um, 
Jinx. Co- yeah. <laughs> I thought it like was like Jinx, but it's Jinx. And it means like, wow, or Jeezy peeps was <laughs> one of the explanations she gave. And I was like, that is also Scottish. I like, need, I need I another like sub definition. Yeah. <laughs> Which means. <laughs> That's funny. She was like, it means like, wow, or Jeezy peeps. This could also be Scottish too. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> Yes, it is. Um, the other day, she taught me the word "coarse" or the phrase "coarse brute," which she translated to "this woman." Coarse brute. Yeah, we were talking about. Um, I had posted the update that the um, Lori Daybell was oh. deemed fit for trial. Good. That's and right. she messaged me and said, "coarse brute," and she goes, "Is the Scottish description of this woman?" <laughs> like this bitch. I literally is that what like, it is? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, totally. That's a hundred percent what it this is. This bitch. Um. Yeah. So yes, I learn something every day, and my understanding is that she has a really great Scottish accent, and I really want to hear it someday. Didn't she record it for us and send it in? No, that was Emily. It's okay. But yeah. awesome. It was not her. It was well, someone else. Anthea, thank you so much. Yes. Um, it was this these letters, with your permission, if I have your permission, I'll post them. Um, DM me and tell me. Yeah, that'd be great. Because um, this is the push I needed over the edge. I was like, ooh, we have this little, little, little insight into, you know, this killer's mind. And it was a good dive. Trying to understand why he did is impossible, I think, for anyone. No. And um, how he did it, it, it was just weird. Oh, one of the things I didn't mention was that while he was in the army, he got a camera. He had a camera. And with his, uh, what do you call these? Fellow soldiers. With his fellow soldiers, he would play photographer but he would ask them to lay in dead poses and he would take these pictures like they thought that he was doing this for art or some type of you know just had an artistic view yeah of sure war or whatnot <laughs> yeah little did they know that he used these pictures as his very own porn because he would have these pictures depicting dead people Ew. Yep. Just in case it wasn't bad enough already. <laughs> Just a little cherry on top for you. So. Yeah. So that is the very, the original Dennis the Menace. <laughs> uh-huh. Menace to society, honestly. And, and, well, in Des, I don't know if this is fictionalized or not, but, um, I mean, I probably believe it, but... He had told the detective once he went and saw him because they didn't have closure for a lot of the unknown victims because he had uh, burned them. So they couldn't identify who they were. Yeah. Um, so he visited him again because they ultimately only were able to charge him with six because they didn't have the names of all these unknown people. Right. Apparently, he might have said to the detectives, like, hey, this, I did 16 in four years. If he hadn't stopped me, I would have gotten in the hundreds. But, like, hadn't stopped me is subjective, because this is the motherfucker that rode into the landlord saying, hey, check those pipes. 
So it's weird. Also, this idea that, like, it's such a male thing to think that you can just pull a hundred guys or a hundred girls or something like that. He's like, I, I can get a, it. I can get a hundred. Like, yeah. God. Well, he, you know, he said I would have, I would have kept killing. He thought Which, he was yeah, I, I, that, yeah, know, I get that. Weird. But I'm just like, you're not all that. Like, <laughs> no. no. In fact, you're overrated and depressing. <laughs> Yes. To quote him. Yeah. Yeah, that's the story. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Um, let's see. If you have other, like, rabbit holes Fatina can dive down that uh, may include but are not limited to whatever is going on in Scientology. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> st- serial killers where letters are involved. Uh, you can direct those over to the group. I will link everything down below in the description or in the show notes. So you can find us over there. <laughs> you can also join Patreon <laughs> to get your requests set to the top of the list. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram at a stranger danger podcast for all of the Jack Sparrow, Johnny Depp. Wow. He is one in the same in my brain. Johnny Depp trial <laughs> updates. <laughs> The Jack Sparrow trial. <laughs> I'm like, did you guys know that Captain Jack Sparrow is on trial is right on now? trial. Um, he's not actually on trial. But for all those updates, you can follow us over on Instagram, and I will update on stories okay. every day that they are in session. Just yep. for you. Free of charge. That's true. I said what I said. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, bye-bye.